This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing another novel. It's Clans of the Alphane Moon by Philip K. Dick. Nina, kick us off. Oh gosh, okay, so I, I volunteered to be Benjamin for this week, which is to say the voice of a cool calm authority (laughs) in giving a sort of reasonable and well you know coherent uh overview of the cultural object um because that that's benjamin's usual role along with his invariably fantastic analysis of said object um i'm not sure how successful i will be at being Benjamin this week, but I am so infused by this novel and by the work of um, Philip K. Dick in general. Um, And rereading this novel, I was reminded of the fact that during my PhD, instead of writing my PhD, I I decided instead to read at a certain point um, all of the published output of Philip K. Dick. so it was an interesting experience to revisit um, this novel. I think this novel, although it has a sort of generic sounding science fiction title and a lot of his other novels are much more famous um, either on, in their own right or because they were made into films and obviously we kind of live in PKD's universe in many ways or at least his analysis which tends towards the uh, the Gnostic, I think PKD is a very strange kind of Christian. Um, he has this very famous uh, revelation where he sees the Christian fish on the necklace of a woman who's delivering him um, some drugs. And he has this image that we are trapped in the Black Iron Prison, which is to say we are still in the Roman Empire and we've never left it. Um, and he sort of pursues this revelation um for the rest of his life uh, since the uh, 70s when it happened. Um, And I think his novels get progressively more and more intense and entangled in this question of reality and multiple layers of simulation. And the the idea of the simulation or the simulacra is one of PKD's most important um, ideas or tropes, if you like. I think this novel in particular is relevant, highly relevant today for multiple reasons. One of which is it's about a moon in which different groups are organised according to different forms of mental illness. This is a moon where the population were formerly members of a, or un, un, I don't know how to put it. They were involuntary members of uh, a mental asylum, which they uh, broke out of and have formed these particular clans. But the clans are based not on ethnicity or race or religious belief, but rather by pathology. Um, so you have, uh, for example, you have the, the paranoid schizophrenics. And I have to say, so the language that PKD uses in this novel to talk about mental illness is slightly dated, right? We don't use some of the same terms um to to talk about 
similar pathologies. Um, as far as I understand it, I'm not an expert in these categories, but schizophrenia, for example, is no longer used in the same way. It's also quite jarring when we look back at people like R.D. Lang um, and even Deleuze and Guattari and so on, and they often use this this language which we don't quite use. But nevertheless, he, he identifies seven clans who live on this uh, moon. Uh, they're the paranoids or the, the pars who live in Adolfville, <laughs> named for, for, for Hitler. Uh, and the, the, the paranoids, uh, the paranoid schizophrenics are the sort of statesmen. They can never be wrong. They're completely paranoid. Uh, they're terribly authoritarian. Um, and yeah, there's no kind of shaking their worldview, if you like. They, they seek to impose their vision on everybody else. They're, they're the Hebes, uh, who are like Hebephrenics, which again is not a word we use um, very often. Um, these people are kind of like untouchables. They they live in Gandhi town, obviously named after uh, Gandhi. Uh, they tend towards religious or spiritual uh, beliefs and practices. They often live uh, in a way that the material world doesn't matter to them at all. So they live in kind of um, in uh, sort of a very uh, dilapidated uh, way, we would say. Um, there are the Manics, um, or the Mans, who live in Da Vinci Heights, which is a, a beautiful touch, who are very creative, but they're completely, completely deranged. They're like psychotic sadists. They're very into violence. They live in the present. Um, they're very hard to deal with. They're kind of like warriors. They don't have any um, uh, fear. Um there's a category called the polys, uh, the polymorphic uh, schizo schizos um, who are quite childless, uh, childlike. Sorry, they have they are very gluttonous. They're very into um, becoming. They uh, again they live in the present, um, but they're not quite kind of grown up. They can't quite uh, mature. Again, this is a category I didn't really kind of understand. I'm not sure what the contemporary parallel would be for the for the polys. There is there are the schizes who are the poet class. These are uh, religious visionaries. They live in uh, Joan of Arc <laughs> is the name of their settlement. Uh, the depressives who live on Cotton Mather estates who are uh, predictably find everything absolutely awful, and the obsessive compulsives who live in Hamlet Hamlet. <laughs> Um, and these people tend to be functionaries. Um, and the whole novel, it starts off with a kind of meeting of these different clans. And I thought it was interesting to compare this idea of the different, uh, these different groups and this kind of uh, political pathology um, two ideas of patchwork, which some people have been discussing in recent years, um, whether we are, might be moving towards a situation where people are indeed separated um, on the basis of their different beliefs and their different um, desires to live in different ways, right? Because, you know, at the risk of, of, of being hyperbolic, there is much discussion at perhaps always about civil war, about kind of irreconcilable um, differences of opinion. Um, we know that the United States is kind of riven by by disagreements um, that seem very, very um, deep. Uh, sometimes we talk about this as a, as a culture war, but I, I think it's more serious than that. And, and there's almost like a kind of 
superficial layer, which is the culture war back and forth. But then there's a deeper layer, which I think is more ontological, which is to do with the fact that people really do want to live in very, very different worlds. Um, and there is a kind of tension um, there. And I suppose one of the questions that's raised by this novel, and it gets predictably extremely complicated, right? Like it gets, as all of Philip K. Dick's work does really, it gets kind of profoundly um, multi-layered. You can't tell what's real. You can't tell who is on what side. All of the sides get blurred. Um, people who think that they're one thing. So for example, there's a uh, an emissary sent out to, to see whether the planet can be the moon can anything can be done with the moon um, and she's supposed to be a mental health professional as it were but it turns out that of course she's completely insane um, it turns out that another guy who you think might be kind of crazy is actually the only sane one uh, there are all these other kind of peripheral creatures who have various um, talents they're very psychic or they can reverse time and bring people back to life um, there's telepathy there's uh yeah, all of this stuff is like fiction and 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 reality blur um, completely. Um, and I think at various points there are questions that are posed to the reader. So how would this? How does this image of this moon with lots of different groups, with all of which have their different pathologies, differ from our own society? Um, insofar as sometimes it seems um, clear, and maybe this is part of our own delusion <laughs> psychoanalytically that we can identify in others particular tendencies um, that might be maladaptive let's say or when we say that someone is well balanced um, we are clearly in a sense uh, referring to um, a let's say superior idea of what it means to have a normal or well-adjusted character right and I think we we talk a lot about how the internet might be encouraging particular forms of pathology. Obviously, Christopher Lash's book on narcissism um, is central. You know, it's kind of a well-worn um, claim at this point. Um, I still think there's a kind of complexity when we talk, when we try to pathologize entire tendencies within society, because it's obvious that if we can't differentiate between the normal and the pathological, and we simply say that an entire culture is pathological, then we don't know what to do with those individuals who we might want to reserve the idea of pathology for, um, if that makes any sense. And of course, we all have um, our own pathologies, our, our own tendencies, our own temptations. Um, and there's a very interesting moment towards the end of the book where the, the question that, you know, the very ancient question of know thyself um, comes up. Um, and I think, again, we're forced to sort of um, ask ourselves very bluntly um, if we feel any affinity <laughs> with any of the clans on the Alphane moon. And if so, which ones, uh, which one um, are we? Or are we or do we imagine that we are the, the sane person who, in fact, has very, very uh, insane ideas and, and indeed it's his one insane idea which is a very violent idea um, that kind of moves the entire plot um, along um, so it's it's very obvious that even the most uh, well balanced of us will have moments of instability um, and, and, and so on um, and I think there's a kind of 
I don't know, maybe, maybe just to sort of finish, whether this this type of science fiction or speculative fiction or however you want to say it is, in fact, um, one of the best ways of thinking psychoanalytically, actually, about our own society. And one thing I think we've mentioned briefly before is the idea that today some forms of mental illness are perhaps more desirable to present oneself as than others. There is, There seems to be a kind of pressure on media figures sometimes to to disclose, as it were, in inverted commas, or they feel the need to um, either diagnose themselves or claim to have a diagnosis, right? And I'm not saying, therefore, that some people don't have a diagnosis, right? I think I think it's obvious in some cases where some behaviour becomes pathological that some people might get a diagnosis of whatever it is. But I'm interested in this thing where sometimes people think they're one thing or they say they're one thing, but actually their behaviour manifests something else. Um, and that something else is the thing that they they can't actually admit to because, in a way, the power of self-delusion is so profound and the fact that they, on some other level, know that if they really understood themselves, insofar as that's possible, they would discover something which is rather unpleasant. <laughs> um and I think we're all stuck, basically, in this kind of situation um, whereby it's tempting to see the world in this pathological way and to try to diagnose others. Um, and sometimes we do that without wanting to diagnose ourselves or to recognise these tendencies that we all have that might be kind of negative or positive or that we can encourage or discourage or that we might need to talk to someone about or what have you. So I, I think this is a very, very brilliant book and all the more so because it's seemingly set in such a, a distant and far off place, which is actually not so far away. All right, let's hear what Helen has to say. Okie dokie. Well, I have a bit of a, a headache, so I hope I'm not like completely, I get my point across. So we'll see. Um, but yeah, just to pick up on what you were saying, it's interesting how many parallels we can draw between this um, landscape that Philip K. Dick depicts and what has happened on the internet, which I think, you know, 20 years ago and the emergence of the internet, there was this hope that this was, you know, the commons, this is a place to share this is a place of abundance where digitally, like, you can replicate a million things. And so it, it changes our relationship to value. And maybe that this had some sort of like anti-capitalist potential. But what has really happened is we've um, siloed off into sort of like they call it, I think, the splinter net. And we now get this sort of very solipsistic um you know, presentation of what we already think and who we already agree with. And this sort of divides us off into identity types or types related to desire and interest or quote unquote political types. Although I would say this is actually like it's an apolitical type. And this is to do with, I think, the nature of AI, the solipsistic nature of AI and the fact that, or not AI, sorry, of um, the digital, sorry, that, that it's only in encountering the lacking other, that we can have uh, dialogue, that we can have actual human interaction, and that inevitably when we interface with a machine to this extent, not actually or 
you know, it, we do inter- interface with other people, but it's really dominated by this digital, non-divided, non-subjectival entity um, that we end up dividing off into this sort of like, we just get fed back what we already think. And this is very dangerous. And I think a lot of what we're experiencing politically is, you know, to do with um, the presence of the internet and the way it's sort of devolved into this um, divided landscape. But I kind of wanted to talk about the issue of identity, clans divided into identity in a slightly different way. And I'm kind of trying to end on the idea of um, that critique is not enough and we need a critique of critique. And let's see if I get there because I was writing this out yesterday, but I'm feeling a little bit like out of it. So will I get there? So in this uh, story, yes, we have these clans divided by the identity of mental illness. And obviously, as Nina touched upon today, we have um, a commoditized version of mental illness, this sort of diagnoses, quote unquote, that um, uh, summarize uh, an issue related to subjectivity. And this summarizing um, maybe has a promise of totality because it explicates an issue with a solution. And anything that does this obviously can, 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 trans- can be transformed into a, a commodity. The trouble is, of course, there is um, philosophical insight to be found and an emancipatory insight to be found in, quote unquote, mental illness. And often, you know, mental illness is illness the correct word? Is it not, you know, is it not something that is um, explicating something about the nature of subjectivity and the nature of society in which we live? If we think psychoanalytically, and this is not to say that like people with mental health issues don't suffer. This is like, you know, this isn't to say that, you know, oh, wow, this is a magical thing and we should just listen to people's mental illnesses and this is a great solution. Like, no, that is not the case either. But if we think psychoanalytically about subjectivity, the way in subjectivity, the way that subjectivity manifests in its symptomology can tell us about the nature of the political economy of a, of a given era or um, the divided nature of subjectivity as such. Like we are all mentally ill. Some mental illnesses are more, um, let's say, extreme and more uh, quote unquote pathological and in a given uh, epoch and place can cause uh, more uh, friction with the conditions of life. And so that's not to say that people shouldn't be medicated and treated and all these kinds of things. Like, absolutely, you only have one life and you've got to live it. Um, But if we uh, analyze the nature of um, subjectivity and quote-unquote mental health issues, we can come to a truth um, about subjectivity and about the universe as such. And this is what psychoanalysis offers philosophically. So what happened, you know, what tends to happen in in kind of like the ideological landscape of quote unquote politics is that we have a conservative understanding, which um, conservatism sort of pretends to be universal when it's actually particularist. And then we get a reaction to this in sort of a form of wokeism. I mean, this is I'm talking like current terms, which attempts to re-particularize because it reads the universality, the live universality of the conservatives as the problem. And it particularizes more and more and more and more and more and ends up denying the universal entirely. So if we look at like, I think queerness is a really good example of this. 
So the logic of ostracism with queerness in, so, you know, let's say the past, in the 20th century, for instance, with the treatment of gay people, is to do with the fact that it's a misunderstanding of what sexuality is related to subjectivity. Like all these things like mental health issues, sexuality, it all comes down to the nature of subjectivity, being a human subject in a lacking universe. So in terms of, let's say, being gay in the mid 20th century and the treatment of gay people uh, during AIDS, it instead of understanding that all sexuality is queer, what a conservative society will do is it'll say that, you know, this is this is the universal. We are the universal with our pure forms of sex, not understanding that sex is impure because it's lacking, because it's a confrontation with lack. And that queer people have a dirty form of sex that is abnormal. But rather understanding that, let's say, if we explore the philosophical nature of homosexual desire, we see that it is manifests slightly different in that, let's say, these are people who are, um, you know, desiring the same sex and some people desire the opposite sex and whatever. But it is speaks to a universality in the experience of sex for everybody. And the way that we can um, politically tarry with this slash make society better for all people is to understand that we all lack in relation to sex. And this is sort of happening with mental illness today. So what we're seeing is, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't use the term conservatism for, for, for this like liberal leftism, but it's, it's still managing the lack of, of subjectivity and of the universe in a really cack-handed way. So mental illness, what happens with, with the sort of conservative societies, you have um, ostracism, this might be racism, and with a uh, woke or liberal society, you have uh, this ostracism goes to victimization and the racism goes to orientalism, but it's still captured in this essentialist, particularist um, ideology that does not understand that the nature of the universe is lacking and the nature of subjectivity is lacking. It never gets to the heart of the issue. And w- when we particularize, we commoditize. Commodity form is obviously tied to capitalism. Capitalism you know, operates in a logic that's like, let's say, libidinally and ideologically that's similar to previous orders of things, but that, you know, it's sort of reduced down to the market system. I know I'm not explaining myself very well, but my mind is not working that well today. <laughs> but anyway, so to go back to yeah, the emancipatory logic of queerness, what the, um, what sexuality is, is a confrontation with lack. It's all queer. This is not to say that um, people have not been historically ostracized because of their forms of desiring deemed as unpure. And we shouldn't tarry with that history in order to make sure that we, you know, treat people equally well. But to get to a logic of emancipation and of universality and universality always has to be lacking because that's the nature of the universe. We have to understand that there is a queerness in all sex. So conservatives, this is why leftists, like proper leftists, might have a tendency to fall into or to be attracted, um, enticed by conservatism wrongly, because conservatives express a universality when they're actually particularists. They're particularists because they are tied to the logic of capitalism, the logic of the ideology of promise, where there is 
um, something, a thing, an individual that will uh, fill a lack and that can be commoditized. But the universality of conservatism is like um, human rights, reason, meritocracy, justice. All these things are like really, really good things, but it's very easy to see that they're not really true under a conservatism that is like within the capitalist uh, universe. So a woke person comes along and is like, no, well, this is a lie, right? Meritocracy is a lie. It's not fair. Look, there's more of this group represented in the upper classes. Justice isn't really justice because look at the American legal system and on how unfair it is and you require money, which is also true. But what the, the woke person does is they misunderstand that the, um, they take the lie as a truth. So the lie is papering over the contradiction of capital. And that's not to say that like the lie that's being used, the ideas within the lie shouldn't be things that we aspire to. But the, the wokest t- throws the baby out with the bathwater and retains the particularity of capitalism and challenges the lie at the level of like an ideological cover story. So then wokes come to celebrate the particular. They turn away from the ideological dimension of conservatism, which is the universal lie. And, you know, they correctly identify it as a lie, but they don't understand that the lie is not a lie in and of itself, but the cover story for this economic system. And um, this economic system is part of, is what they also are trying themselves to rationalize. This is why wokeism is also right-wing. It's not left-wing. So... um, They venerate the particular and utterly negate the universal. The universal we can only get to by understanding that it is tied to lack, that this is way too much to get into right now. And we've talked about it a gazillion times, like why subjectivity is marked by lack. (laughs) You cannot have things like justice, meritocracy, human rights, whatever reason. Reason is something that emerges from us being um, divided subjects, we're divided subjects because we're marked by the unconscious, we're marked by the unconscious because of the nature of um, the way in which we're born, and the way in which we're born is marked by like the nature of the universe itself. So reason is contradictory, is lacking. So the universal though, so, so in attempting to move away from the universal which they see as the lie of capitalism, they return to the particular. And so they, 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 um, become even in a way more right wing. They become more tied to the particularist essentialist ideology of promise. So the particularist is there's borders around a given essential thing. And this distance between me and it is the is the premise of it's like the um the necessary factor to create a commodity. And this is why we have, as you said, Nina, like this motivation to identify with something for, let's say, a career purpose, or we interpret symptoms in the sort of DSM sort of way, and we lock down a diagnosis which communicates something rather than understanding that, let's say, something that we call, let's say, a given phenomenon within mental illness may be a symptom of capitalism as such. Um. So, but the universal is that which is political. The universal is, is lack as such. The political is tarrying with lack, is tarrying with desire, is, is confronting different forms of desire related to the way that we structure society and the way we live with other people. And it's the role of the leftist, I would argue, 
to understand politics in this way. And this is an insight. I mean, this is like the Hegelian end of history, right? And it could apply to any like historical form of organizing society. But, you know, we, we would hope that this is something that we can like aim towards under capitalism. So this is one why I say like the critique is not enough. We must critique the critique because the critique basically, unless it understands the true universal nature of subjectivity, pushes the contradiction further down. And we're left with something kind of potentially even worse than capitalism or a form of capitalism that's even more oppressive, which is maybe what we're looking at now. Um, we have to return to politics, return to the universal. And this is something that psychoanalysis helps us with. We've talked about this a million times. Um, but this is why I also think that, like, I think the important thing, and sometimes people's maybe like liberals would criticize this, is that I think it's not enough to, to like, uh, think that there is no meaning or that there is, um, you know, that, oh gosh, I don't even know how I'm, how I'm going to articulate this. And I do apologize because I'm mid migraine. That <laughs> this is, that's her excuse, you know, and maybe I haven't thought about this enough, but, um, it's important that we believe in nothing, nothing as a thing. I will explain this. Um, we need to universalize uh, negativity. I don't think that we can have like communism per se without a belief in nothing. We have to positivize the negation. I'm not able to get to that this morning, but maybe in the rest of the podcast I'll get to it. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, so now it's my turn. Going third, it's been a while since I've gone third. So, when the mental hospital on Alpha 3M2 collapses, the mental patients form a society, but they carry the psychiatric diagnoses they were given into the new society and allow these diagnoses to define them. By reifying their diagnoses into what resembles ethnicities, races, or castes, the mental patients instantiate a set of cultural antagonisms that make it difficult for them to live alongside one another. When post-colonial populations embrace the group designations given to them by their former masters, those group differences produce antagonisms that their old masters can exploit. So it comes as no surprise that, when the Terrans return to retake the moon, they are laser-focused on identifying these group tensions and exploiting them for gain. The groups have begun to take pride in their own illnesses. They have contempt for the settlers with similar but different diagnoses. Given that Alpha 3M2 is a small moon and the Terrans come from planet Earth, the former patients are at a serious power disadvantage even before their illnesses and internal divisions are taken into account. The group dynamics on Alpha 3M2 certainly rhyme with some contemporary cultural problems. For one, it is quite literally the case that today there are many people who take pride in having been diagnosed with mental illnesses, who treat these mental illnesses as identities, and who view any attempt to critique this practice as an attempt to stigmatize them. For two, the use of socially constructed pseudo-ethnicities as a means of dividing and subduing a population is heavily reminiscent of the way politicians in many countries make use of racial and cultural categories today. But... Dick does not appear to be primarily interested in critiquing the society on Alpha 3M2. In the end, the mentally ill settlers are triumphant, 
and the moon successfully resists the Terran invasion. This is not to suggest that Dick finds nothing wrong with the society found on Alpha 3M2, but Dick seems to think that the Terrans have created something even worse. What's wrong with Terra? As events are developing on Alpha 3M2, Dick also follows a married couple, Chuck and Mary. Mary is a psychotherapist, and she's had substantially more career success than Chuck. Chuck has a comparatively low-paying job in the intelligence services. Mary feels Chuck should be more ambitious, that he should be a proper breadwinner. Chuck feels that Mary has contempt for him, that she wants him to take a different job so as to make a different person out of him. They get divorced, and Mary gets the better of Chuck in court. The financial settlement so decisively works against Chuck that he is forced to take the very job he refused to take while they were married. Embittered, he contemplates suicide, and he considers attempting to murder Mary to be free from the terms of the divorce. It is clear that Chuck is an analog for the author. Like Philip K. Dick in the 60s, Chuck is a writer who has enjoyed only limited commercial success. When this novel was published in 1964, Dick was in the process of divorcing his third wife. At one stage, Dick tried to push his third wife off a cliff. At another point, he had her involuntarily committed. After the divorce, Dick attempted suicide by driving his car off the road, with a new woman as his passenger. All told, Dick had five marriages. On average, each of these marriages lasted about five years. None of them broke the decade mark. Dick plays with the idea that his Terran married couple might be every bit as unwell as the folks on the moon. At the end of the novel, Chuck and Mary submit themselves to a battery of psychiatric tests. Despite his thoughts of suicide and murder, Chuck is found to be mentally healthy. Chuck suspects Mary might be manic, but instead she's found to be depressed. This might sound like an exoneration of Chuck, and thus Dick, but it's not. The point is very clearly that the line between well and unwell is blurry, and that Terra is not itself a particularly healthy environment. The novel ends with Chuck and Mary reconciling, however unlikely that might seem to the reader. Philip K. Dick seems to have wanted to make sense of women, even if in practice he found this forever beyond his reach. It is perhaps for this reason that he introduces the anthropomorphic slime mold. The slime mold is called Lord Running Clam. It can read minds, and it can speak its thoughts directly into people's minds. Lord Running Clam decides that the best way to save Chuck from suicide is to find him a woman who might love him. But while Chuck has some level of success with the women who are subsequently introduced, he finds himself coming back to Mary by the end of the novel. Lord Running Clam enables Dick to critique Chuck, and in this way the novel allows Dick to critique himself. The novel ends the way Dick's real life wouldn't. Mary confronts the reality that she wanted to make Chuck change his life, not for his benefit, but to alleviate her own depression. As a result, she opts to get back together with him. The divorce laws on Terra subject Chuck to enormous economic pressure, ultimately forcing him into a sharp conflict with his wife. But once they get together on Alpha 3M2, they find that, among the clinically insane, their relationship can be revived. You see, despite its many faults, the isolation in which Alpha 3M2 finds itself has allowed the settlers to adopt a thoroughgoingly uncompetitive mode of social organization. They use outmoded technology, and some of the diagnostic groups enjoy very low standards of living. In this environment, it is possible to be a homesteader, 
free from the ordinary economic demands that pervade life on Terra. At the end of the novel, when the moon comes under the protection of the Alphane Empire, a state that competes with Terra, it is protected from security competition and therefore protected from the need to develop a competitive economy. Dick admires the forms of semi-primitivism this makes possible, and he's willing to put up with the identity politics and valorization of mental illness to get this opportunity to explore ways of life that defy capitalist instrumentality. It is no coincidence that so much of our time on Alpha 3M2 is spent in Gandhi Town, the poorest and filthiest town on the moon. Dick sees value in the simplicity of this community. While it is threatened with destruction, and the other factions on the moon are just about ready to let it go down the tubes, Dick makes one of his characters suffer a change of heart at the last minute. He goes out of his way to make Gandhi Town as filthy as possible. From the Terran standpoint, the existence of the town is clearly and obviously intrinsically offensive, but Dick makes sure to preserve it and to defend its value whenever the narrative appears ready to make it a casualty of war. There is a lot of dark humor in this novel, but at its core there is a deep and boundless gentleness. It lapses into authorial wish fulfillment in its second half, but I enjoyed it all the same. Very nice. <laughs> You're much better at being Benjamin than I am. I, I think you should revert to type <laughs> next time. Well, um, it's fun to change it up. Yeah, I um no, it's interesting. I was trying. I was trying to be sort of super logical in my <laughs> approach, but it. I think the 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 way the novel unfolds makes it kind of impossible to to do that in a certain way. I think if your own mind is sort of like gets caught up in the machinations, um, I th- yeah, I th- I th- I think I I suppose I generally tend to resist the kind of um, the biographism which he brought in. Although, like to be fair, I brought in my own when I talked about Dick's own you know religious revelation. So I do understand, and it is it is true that he has this kind of um, perennial obsessive fascination with the dark dark haired girl um you know that there is a kind of archetypal um fantasy that that dick has um which he writes about kind of endlessly and it is i suppose this sort of um i i suppose like he's he's trying to understand women whilst not being able to understand women i guess which is Fair enough, which is the kind of, you know, very common among (laughs) male writers, um, perhaps, Uh, maybe particularly of this era. And I wonder, I wonder actually if one of the shifts we've seen is this kind of problem of proximity, actually, between men and women, you know, that that, that there's a mystery that has been kind of taken away away somehow um, in the sort of smashing together of everything and the homogenizing of everything and forcing everyone to be in competition with each other you know of course i've written about this um in defense of a certain type of of difference and you know i i've suggested that psychoanalysis for example cannot proceed unless there is a notion of difference at at its at its heart um and that between men and women there is an important difference um, that needs to be defended because against this kind of um, total bureaucratization, homogenization, making everything the same, making everyone rivalrous, making everyone like brother and sister. So in that sense, I guess I would defend Dick's 
fascination with the sort of eternal mystery and the fact that, that you know, the Chuck character, the normal character, as it were, uh, even though he ends up being the only normal person <laughs> at the end and wants to set up his own normal community on his own, um, you know, is is brought back to his his wife despite or perhaps because of his hatred and, and incomprehension of her ambition, her terror and ambition, which turns out to be actually a symptom of her own depression. And I think this kind of, you know, there is a sort of dialectical understanding he reaches um, of that, which is itself quite beautiful. And this attempt to start again on a different on a different moon um, is very romantic, even though it's very, very strange. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah, I generally agree that assuming that the author's talking about themselves is often a mistake and it can often be used to write off legitimate and interesting things that people say. In this particular case, I think it it's relevant because of the sheer amount of overlap between the character's situation and Dick's own situation at the time. Both in terms of career at stage in relationship at what was going on in the in the two relationships there's just too much overlap for this particular book at that particular moment in Dick's life for me to not take it as to some degree autobiographical i would not necessarily make that assumption about other books dick mm-hmm. writes at other times in his life when this very intense personal drama was not going on but in, in looking at his basic biography, it seems that 1964 is the year that's really interesting. People tend to talk about the year he had the mystical experience. Sure. I think that's 74. But this comes before that, right as this personal life experience is happening. And so I, I could not help but be affected by it in my reading. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And I, I certainly think the later novels, um, like the Vallis trilogy, are like way more out there. And, and, you know, what happens after his kind of revelation is, you know, maybe uh, fits more into a kind of philosophical, mystical um, attitude. Um, and sure, I, I guess a lot of fiction is kind of autofiction, thinly described, although a lot of autofiction is just really bad. Like we have a lot of autofiction now. And like, you know, as we said before, I, I think it's because people are afraid to write about anything outside of their own experience because they think that they'll get in trouble for misrepresenting something. So we have a kind of trepidation around making claims about the world in case, you know, one is cancelled for saying the wrong thing or misrepresenting. Well, you, you can't write autofiction if you're Philip K. Dick in 2020. If Philip K. Dick wrote this novel in 2022, it wouldn't fly because autofiction is for people who are perceived to be representing descriptively groups that have been excluded because of the degree to which descriptive representation has been taken up as the conceptualization of representation that is acceptable. If you come from a group that hasn't previously been written about from within its own perspective, then you're very publishable. But Philip K. Dick is a, a man who's being divorced, a straight white man who's being divorced. I, so I think that it would be very difficult for this kind of autofiction to be written now. This is the... Um... At the same time, I think you're right that autofiction in general has become the predominant mode. And it makes it impossible for someone to write... Yeah, this is autofiction, but it's also Philip K. Dick very much exploring how do women work mentally... How do they work psychologically? And so he's doing it from within his own standpoint, or a standpoint that's very similar to his. 
but he is also trying to to look into the psychology of an other. And I think this is part of what really attracted you to this book. This book very clearly takes male and female as two separate and distinct things, with Dick trying to understand the female in a sympathetic way, illustrating that you can have this kind of ontological division, but still treat the other side of it with sympathy, which I think mm-hmm. is a huge theme in your work. Yeah. Of, of course, the, the woke reader who looks at this will go, well, Philip K. Dick was an abusive man who involuntarily committed his wife and you know tried to kill himself with a woman in the car because he had no concern for, you know, you could see how I imagine it would be read the other way. Uh, but I, I, in listening to what Helen said about this, I kept thinking about conceptions of representation and the kind of tension that I think is at the heart of the the culture war in the States between descriptive and symbolic representation. So I think a lot of the time, words like conservative are are getting used in a way that's confusing for people because there are too many different things that go under the name conservative. There's, you know, Arendtian Republicanism, and there's uh, political Catholicism, and there's Hayekian neoliberalism. There's too many things that go under the name. But I think that we can talk about this cultural conflict in terms of descriptive versus symbolic representation, where the the state legitimates itself in part by claiming to be representative, but being representative is vague and imprecise. Descriptive representation, the state is is legitimate insofar as it's representative, and it's representative insofar as all of the different groups that exist, that are taken to be real, are represented in a way that's proportionate to their size or proportionate uh, in such a way that it ensures that all of those groups are heard or are recognized. So maybe it's not strictly proportionate to size, but ensures that all the groups are recognized or heard. So it treats as the fundamental unit of society groups, treats the groups as real, and is trying to incorporate, listen to, recognize. It's about recognition of groups, right? On the other side, symbolic representation thinks that the state should be represented as, a, as an organic whole, right? And so, therefore, the state should be represented with, with a symbolic person who has a kind of relationship to the whole state and the whole, oftentimes, the whole people in the nationalist ontology. So, the aim of the state is to represent the people treated as an organic whole, not a patchwork of groups. So, of course, the descriptive view critiques the symbolic view by saying there's no organic people. There is no one singular people that can be represented in that way. And that critique is true. At the same time, the symbolic critique says, but there are no groups. And in positing that there are groups, it makes it impossible for the state to uh, act in a way which uh, takes seriously some notion of, say, common interest. Right. Even if there is no, strictly speaking, singular people, it might still be useful to act as if there is in some sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, just right. to go back to what Helen was saying, like there's this, there's this quote from early on in the novel where it says, psychoanalysis has shown that generally when two mutually contradicting reasons for an act were given, the genuine underlying motive was neither 
was a third drive which the person, or in this case, a body of governing officials was unaware of, right? And and PKD is using all the time these kind of insights that he's like gathered from, I mean, you know, this is also somebody who's very familiar with the kind of cult scenes in California, increasingly so as the, the decade wears on. You know, there's synonym, there's all kinds of madness happening in terms of like an overlap between sort of mental health diagnoses, addiction treatments, cults, you know, absolute craziness insane amounts of drug use um, and so on um, but I wonder about this third because I think sometimes you know like in relation to, to, to Helen talking about these politics this tension between like let's say left and right in, in, in the way she's using them is like it's it's sometimes very tempting to and I, I, I feel this to myself right to, to reduce positions to pathologies right like this is something this is why also this novel i think is interesting because in a way it does it goes all the way and says right what if all politics is pathology right and that they're just these different tendencies um and you know when we're looking at people we disagree with for example like you can see all the time this desire to catch someone in a hypocrisy or to say oh this person secretly uh, wants this right so the classic example let me give you give you an example like to be clear like so for example the the person who the let's say the man the married family man who presents himself as a paragon of christian um you know behavior is caught um you know smoking crystal meth with a rent boy or something like that right like this is a kind of classic trope and then does the kind of press conference with his sort of upset looking wife saying you know i'm I, I've, I've sinned and i'm going to make amends and and so on and and this to a certain kind of um i don't know from a sort of nihilistic liberal position which accepts actually a degree of hypocrisy and hedonism <laughs> says ha you know this is the truth like this is the third of the reality which is you presented yourself like this but actually what you want is this um and this reveals that the the first thing you said you were that i.e. the christian family man isn't true but the thing is like both can be true right and and the th the third thing that's revealed is perhaps something like the lack the the kind of um the contradiction right and of course it's annoying when somebody presents themselves in one way but they turn out to be something else or you catch someone in a lie but but in a way we do this all the time like it's extremely difficult to be like completely consistent right all we can do is to try to be consistent between what we say and what we do if we even think that's a Goal. Yeah, we're never going to be consistent. Well, That's right. the whole thing of routine <laughs> subjects. I, but I think there is a view about representation which would be more consistent, but that view can't secure the legitimacy of the state, and that's Thomas Hobbes's view. So Thomas Hobbes mm -hmm. says there's neither a united people nor are there a bunch of different groups. There's a fractious multitude, but the state creates the illusion of a unity, and that enables the polity to act. Now, if you straightforwardly say that to people, it's hard for them to really feel genuinely bonded to the polity. The goal of Hobbes's argument is to bond them to the polity, and it doesn't accomplish that goal, even though it describes the situation in, a, I think, a way that's more truthful than either the symbolic or descriptive view. Mm -hmm. And that's why even though the Habesian conception of, of representation is more accurate, yet is less politically useful in the long run and is superseded by these theoretically inferior but politically more tractable conceptualization but this is this is the issue though because like 
with these, let's say, arbitrarily conservative and wokeism, which we kind of see today, it's precisely when they, what makes them apolitical is what makes them in the common parlance political, which is when they try to paper over the lack of their own condition. Mm-hmm. So this is why I say you have to like positivize the negation, as in, let's say, conceive of politics as lack as such. And I don't think you can, I don't think you, for instance, I don't think you can like identify, like it's hard for people to think universally or to identify with the group unless you, okay, so, so let's say if this, if this thing holds of like, yeah, we are, we are, we share what we don't share, the one universe, the one mm-hmm. thing that ties us together is our lack. Like, unless that's positivized, I don't think people can get behind it. But the political is the lack. But then, well, Hobbes yeah. positivizes it because P- Hobbes says there's no people and there are no groups. There's just multitude. And multitude is, is the Habesian lack. Sounds good. But there is know. the kind of threat in Hobbes, you know, I mean, man is a wolf mm-hmm. to man. You know, you also have the internal external threat, right? Like, which is the, the wolfness of man, right? Whether he's accurate about wolf is another question. And I'm sure I've mentioned before this thing about uh, paranoia about the wolf as this melancholic figure, you know, the antisocial, the wolf is the antisocial figure who destroys the fantasy of the or the illusion of the social which is that which is held in power, mutual power. But I agree that the, the problem with Hobbes, and this is why he's also quite, um, he gets in trouble, is because in a way he, he, he lays bare the mechanism and you're not really supposed to do that, right? He says, this is how it, <laughs> this is how it works. Most theorists who lay bare the mechanism are critical theorists who are trying to delegitimate the state. Yeah. Hobbes lays bare the mechanism in the service of legitimating it. Yeah. And he thinks that by laying bare the mechanism, he can nonetheless legitimate it. And he's able to take that risk because he's operating during the Civil War when the state already lacks legitimacy and there's nothing for him to break. But By approaching the problem in a, in a way that lays it bare, mm. he has some chance of actually being able to work on it. Whereas the people who are continuing to stand the old dying conceptions of, of legitimacy, the old dying legitimation stories, those people are unable to adapt to the new situation because they are flogging dead horses. Yeah, except that the thing that Hobbes does do, which is also dangerous, is to to make the eternal temporal Right. So when he talks about the, you know, like he, he wants to, like a good rationalist, overcome superstition. Right. He knows that the people are kind of bewitched by stories of ghosts. And, you know, there's vast quantities of that book of Leviathan, which are about superstition. Right. And these stories and the fact that people believe things that aren't true and they're misled. Right. And this is dangerous because it's a sort of populism. But instead of saying, you know, we need to believe in the one true God, he says, well, actually, in a way, the state uses God. <laughs> like God, it's God, God becomes uh, uh, almost like a state functionary, which is an extremely heretical thing to say, regardless of whether you're in a civil war or not, um, because it temporalizes the eternal, right? At the same time, Hobbes tries to obfuscate the fact that I think he does do what you're mm. suggesting, but he tries to obfuscate it. Yeah. And I think what all of the philosophers and sages who get really far into this do is they have to obfuscate to some degree the the point while still making the point so that it's there to be seen by those who have the political maturity to make use of it and the philosophical maturity to appropriately use it. 
And so while people try to put him on trial for atheism, they don't ultimately succeed in getting rid of him. Uh, I I think that there's, with, with Hobbes, there is, the issue with Hobbes is that most of the time when the philosopher or the theologian or the theurgist talks about reconstituting rituals for the purposes of, of regenerating legitimacy, they occlude it enough that very few people really get to the bottom of what's being said. So, say, take Confucius, for instance. I think Confucius plays a very similar role to Hobbes insofar as Confucius is operating during the Warring States period and is coming up with a theory of how to uh, regenerate a, a common set of mores from which you could build the legitimacy of states. Mm-hmm. And, but with Confucius, un- unless you reach the sage level, you don't really get to the mechanics of how you reconstitute the rituals. Most of Confucius's analects are devoted to just laying out rituals, telling people what they ought to be doing. And so when a kind of mid-tier reader approaches Confucius, they just view him as someone who's telling them what to do. Yeah. Whereas Hobbes makes it too clear that he's not just telling you what to do, he's telling you how to think about how to figure out what to do. And that makes it too obvious that there isn't an obvious answer to the question of what to do, which then opens the door to further deviations and makes necessary uh, other kinds of legitimation stories, which are philosophically less coherent but more effective in the face of the delegitimating effects of Leviathan, quite contrary to Hobbes's intention, because it's too bare, it has these massive delegitimating effects as a text, and that forces the, the rise of the liberal legitimating abstractions, the liberal conceptualizations mm-hmm. of representation and equality and liberty. But I think that there is, there's a lot in Hobbes precisely because it... Lays it too bare. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think I think this is kind of this very complicated question about getting people to do the good, not because you tell them to do the good, but because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> and this is like philosophers and theologians have this, yeah, uh, problem perennially, right? Because yeah, and most of them accept that most people just aren't going to do the good for its own sake. They have to be tricked into it through a legitimation story. Mm. Hobbes actually tries to tell people straight up, teach this to people in school, he recommends to the sovereign, teach them this argument. Uh, he treats the argument as if it's something that anybody can be made to, to affirm, like it's a universal legitimation story. And that's the fundamental mistake, because Hobbes' story is not at all something that the ordinary person is going to find true. It's something that... Uh, is more true than a lot of the stories that are ultimately told, but it's not one that you can actually find large-scale mass affirmation of. Um, talking of, to go back to uh, female desire, there is a universal in the female desire because, like, it's interesting that, like, obviously, this question of what does woman want, I think, comes up a lot in science fiction. Mm-hmm. But also, the woman doesn't know what she wants either, or the hysteric, you know, let's just say whether they're a woman or a man or whatever. So this is Peter's point, but I think it's quite interesting. And this is based on some friends of us. But the woman, the man doesn't know what the woman wants and nor does the woman. The woman turns to, and I say woman, okay, the hysteric might turn to like tarot cards to read her own desire or whatever. 
And then the obsessive might get into something like UFOs that represent the sort of alien desire of the female or, the, you know, the object of desire or whatever. But nobody knows. <laughs> There's no answer. I, I know what I want. That's good. <laughs> you know, what do you want? I'd like to sit in the sun and read a book. But you, I don't know if you were hysteric, Nina. No, I'm a psychotic. We've established this. We've established this. So you are. Well, yeah, so much of what we talk about on this show just comes back to what conditions are necessary for you to sit in the sun and read a book. And, you know, for such a simple activity, it's very complicated to actually create a society in which large numbers of people can do it regularly. Exactly. Mm. This is sadly true. I mean,. Uh, this I was having a big conversation yesterday about fully automated luxury communism and what the problem is and what the what capitalism gets right, which is surplus value. And we have to, but it's the redistribution of surplus value that's the problem. Um, because, yeah, but we need to be able to understand that we don't want, want what we want and also that... Um, there is an excess because of lag. How do we deal with the excess? That's the problem. Capitalism deals with the excess very badly. So, all right, we're know. going to talk about excess on the B side okay. because there's <laughs> again, yeah, there's some excess-related stuff in this novel, I think, and we've come to excess in the conversation. So, I think it's a great moment to move to the B side, which you can find on Patreon, dear listeners. So, thank you so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.